Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Drew Scott here. And I'm Jonathan Scott reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And right now, Thomas Hurts is an open book for Ray Leonard. Backs up against the ropes. This is one of the most unusual calls by a referee in the history of the sport. The first loss. A tremendous victory. Leonard fighting off the ropes. It happened. It happened. Number cut by Douglas. Down goes Tyson. Holds it. Right hand shot. Excellent. Knocks out by Tyson. Now slugs to the canvas. The champion struggles to stay on his feet. How do you like it? fans to another episode of BTR Boxing Podcast Legendary Nights with me your host Sean Pasto shortly to be joined by Johnston Brown for this tale as picked by Johnston Brown of course we had our picks we had mine a couple of weeks ago Lewis versus Smelling and now we've got Johnston pick which is the tale of Aaron Pryor versus Alexis Arguello but of course before we get into the Legendary Nights episode I want you guys to go and check us out on social media at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook as well and if you've not already subscribed to the podcast then what are you doing get over there and subscribe to us on Apple Podcast or Podbean, Stitcher Spreaker, Player FM or even Spotify go and check out the new YouTube channel all the audio versions of the podcast will be on there shortly to be joined by video versions in the next coming months so as selected by our co-host Johnston Brown this is the tale of Aaron Pryor versus Alexis Arguello Peace so we're back for another episode of Legendary Nights, which has now got its brand new feed. And if you've not already subscribed to Legendary Nights, please go and check it out on any podcasting app available. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, you know where to find us. We're on Twitter as well at BTR Boxing Pod and Facebook, BTR Boxing Podcast. Thank you so much to everybody that's been following us and sharing everything that we've been putting out. We really appreciate it. So this is the Legendary Night that's been selected by Johnston. You've selected this Legendary Night as one of them fantastic fantastic fights that you've watched from over the years and it's just an unbelievable fight marred by a lot of controversy as we go on through the episode and the aftermath of course of both of these men this is the tale of Aaron Pryor versus Alexis Arguello and I have to admit 
I wasn't even born. 12th of November, 1982, I weren't born to the 27th. And it's funny and ironic that I've decided to choose this fight. It is one of the greatest, one of the best fights I've ever seen. Uh, and the controversy that surrounded it was, it's all iconic. Everything about the two guys, Alexis Aguero is one of my favourite fighters ever. Just the way he fights and, and his personality. And Aaron Pryor was also another guy that, that went under the radar and sorts in the 80s because of the fabulous four. And he's like, almost like the other six. It's like the super six, if you like, when you add these two in. And this fight at the Orange Bowl is just an absolute stunner. And it's one that I'm really pleased that we can finally get in for a legendary night. I had an absolute great time watching back on this particular fight and looking at the build-up and looking at a young Bob Arum and a Burt Sugar and all these characters that we, we knew growing up as children in in the late 80s and the early 90s, seeing these guys and, and then seeing them obviously in their older age and, and unfortunately some of them are not with us anymore, but it was great to sort of look back on the build-up for how big of a fight this really was back in 1982 and as always with Legendary Nights, we look at the build-up prior to the fight. So we're going to look at the careers of both men leading up to this fight and what led to this significant fight. And then also we'll go into the build-up specifically for the fight. What got these two guys going? Did it Was the controversy? Was the press conference fights? We're going to go into it all, of course, and we're going to tell the tales of it. And then we get into the fight itself. We break down what was one of the greatest fights of the 80s. And then... We look at the aftermath. What did this fight mean for boxing? What did this fight mean for both men's careers? How did it all end for them? That's what we're going to go into in this episode. So, of course, we're going to start with Aaron Pryor's career first and foremost. And we're going to look at the significant fights throughout his career and look at the ones that were significant to make his career to the level it got to. And I think without going too deep into it and deep diving into his career, I think the first significant test in his career came in the late 1970s and I think when you look back on on some of the fights that he was involved in you've got to look back and see that this guy was an absolute animal he was an animal and all the fights have the sort of (laughs) have the same style and you look at his career and you look at him and think to yourself you know imagine this guy in today's boxing era and I think going back to his career and looking at the first test of his career, it happened in 1979 for me, 20th of October 1979 against Alfonso Fraser, that was the first big test of his career, he was fighting a very experienced Alfonso Fraser and he needed a big test and this was the test. It was and and Alfonso Fraser was 22, 13 and 3 at the time, some people would obviously look at the 13 and and seemed to think that this guy wasn't anywhere near an elite level. He was a, a fabulous fire. 13 losses in that this this time of, you know, late 70s. Uh, he went through the whole of the 70s. These guys fought regularly. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes you, you're not, you don't perform your best. And and Alfonso Fraser was, was a good test for Aaron Pryor. And as you say, Aaron Pryor was a beast. I mean, you stuck him in today's era, he would be an absolute animal. I honestly believe he would be the undisputed champion and there would be no one that can go near him because the energy and the amount of punches he would throw, he was just a joy to watch Aaron Pryor. And, and Fraser as well was a former world champion uh, and a future world champion. And he was a real stable pro. 
and and uh, Aaron Pryor, he, he got rid of him in five. He certainly did get rid of him in five, and this was what would lead him on then to start what was going to be a, a, a great run, really. He'd obviously won all of his fights up until this point, of course, knocking out 17 of the 19 opponents going into the Alfonso Fraser fight. But then he would go on and have one more fight before then going into Miami. So he travelled from Cincinnati to Las Vegas to Miami to Kansas City, and then he would eventually go back to his hometown of Cincinnati, for the, the biggest fight of his career at this point, which was in 1980, uh, the 2nd of August 1980, against Antonio Cervantes for the WBA Super Lightweight Championship of the World. A few minutes ago here in Cincinnati, a moment of silent prayer in the dressing room of Aaron Pryor, and that is his young son, Aaron Jr., in the foreground, and we're looking now at the challenger. He is in the ring to meet the champion, Antonio Kid Pambale Cervantes of Colombia, now living in Venezuela, making his 21st title appearance. Quite an incredible record. Gil, one of the controversies uh, that sprang up here regarding this fight came from the manager of Aaron Pryor, Buddy La Rosa, who complained that two of the judges he considered were Latin American. One indeed is from Venezuela. The other is from uh, Puerto Rico, and the referee is from Los Angeles. They felt that this was going to favor the champion. What effect do you think it'll have on the fight? They were appointed by the WBA, we might add. What effect do you think it'll have on the fight and the fighters? Well, I, I feel that's why fighters have managers. If uh, they leave Pryor alone, let him concentrate on Cervantes, I don't think they're going to have to worry about the officials. I think that uh, Pryor can score a knockout. All right. Well, we'll see what happens here and whether indeed it does have any effect if the fight goes the distance. Antonio Cervantes, what a fantastic fighter he was. Colombian guy. It, the fight is on YouTube. The actual fight was actually shown on CBS. Cervantes had lost to great fighters like, like Loche, uh, the Argentinian. Jimenez, Davis, uh, one of our guys uh, that, that obviously had the trilogy with Duran and Benitez. Benitez was a young teenage guy that had beaten uh, Cervantes. And Cervantes, he knew that what Pryor was about. And he was. And the crazy thing with Aaron Pryor, up to this point, you know, 25 fights, but the trouble with Pryor was he was a danger. You're probably going to get beaten by him and you're not going to earn a lot of money. And Pryor only earned 50 grand in this fight. But what a fight. And as I say, if anyone hasn't seen it, YouTube, this is for the, the WBA and the ring light welterweight titles. And Pryor was put down in the first round. And, and he gets up almost instantly and he's rolling his arm around. And, and it's like Chavantes, he, he, he must have known it was, it was just danger. You put Pryor down, it meant nothing. Pryor's getting straight back up and he's going to get right on, on your chest and he's going to look to knock you out. That's exactly what he did. He ended up knocking Chavantes out in the fourth. Pryor took a right hand from the champion and the referee called it a knockdown yes, his glove hit the canvas and I thought it was too well he didn't catch him clean but it was enough to send him down well the rule says any part of your body but your feet hits the canvas it's a knockdown and his glove did go down he took the mandatory eight count but came out showing that he wasn't hurt at all and I really don't think he was counter punching right hand landed from Cervantes but fired just right back with pressure just seems to brush them off him and he's changing his direction as he moves in and that's confusing Cervantes also jabbing pretty well for a guy that's considered a slugger. He's getting to that cut, and he landed a good combination. And I told you, Pryor's a good finisher, Tim. He's got him down. A good finisher. A good punch. Tremendous oh. right hand. Looked like an uppercut that sent the champion to the canvas, and he's trying to shake the cobweb. He might not make it up. He does not. It's all over. There is a new junior runaway champion, the hometown hero, Aaron Pryor. And, and he won his first world title, and this was really the first 
it was, it was, as you say, it was the biggest fight of his career and it really put him on the map and made people realise that Aaron Pryor is no joke and he's here to stay and he's going to be a, a right threat for any of the, any of the welterweights that are around at the time. So the, the next significant fight for me in his career came just not too many months afterwards. In November of 1980, he would make his first major payday, $100,000. So equate that to what today's money is. You're probably looking anything between half a million to three quarters of a million, maybe even more. That was just a complete guesstimate. So $100,000 for fighting Gaetan Hart, defending his WBA super lightweight title. Again, back in Cincinnati, back at the Riverfront Coliseum, defending his title in emphatic fashion, getting that victory, stopping Hart within six rounds. And for me, it just solidified him that at that time as, as one of the great super lightweights of that era. He started becoming this guy that he was he was well known. Obviously in Cincinnati he was well known. He was well known for what he was achieving in the ring. But it wasn't going to be long before these big fights were, were, were going to come creeping up and you know that the likes of the Sugar Ray Leonard's and the Roberto Durant's who were also doing significantly well at this point in their careers, as you were talking about at the top of the show, it, his career was overshadowed by the Fab Four. And, and, and that is that is true because you look at the popularity of Aaron Pryor as a fighter and then you look at the popularity of the other two that I've mentioned in particular. And he was struggling to sort of get to that $100,000. And you had Duran and you had Leonard who... You know, we're making a hell of a lot of more money just in in in, in a few fights down the line. I've, I think for Ray Leonard, he came out of the Olympics, obviously earning fantastic amounts of money straight away, and then you had Duran who built his way up and started earning mega money. And then for Aaron Pryor, seemingly the guy who was sort of left behind a little bit by these fighters, was starting to make that level of money and that level of popularity. So he gets that victory then in late 1980 over Hart, makes his first $100,000. And and what you were just saying there in terms of the disappointment for him was the fact that he did miss out in, in the 1976 Olympics. He lost out to Howard Davis. And the crazy thing was, obviously, we know that that 1976 Olympics was a fantastic Olympics for America and had some tremendous fighters with with uh, the Spinks brothers, with Leonard, uh, Howard Davis being another guy. He was on a reserve list, reserve list and didn't manage to get back in. Uh, and obviously, you know, we all know how great they all became. But, you know, the fact is, is that he ended up becoming Howard Davis' sparring partner for, for pretty much Howard Davis' career. And Howard Davis, if you threw the name Howard Davis and Aaron Pryor, many people today, people would say, who's Howard Davis? But we all know who Aaron Pryor is. And the crazy thing was, Howard Davis was earned millions of dollars. A million dollars he earned in one of his first sort of three or four fights. And, you know, like you say, and then you get Pryor only only earning 100000 against uh, Hart. But it was this win that really brought about a big name. And it was in December 1980. And it was looking like Sugar Ray Leonard. And actually, Pryor rejected $500,000 to fight Sugar Ray Leonard for the WBC Worldweight Championship because he wanted more money. When the WBC raised the amount to 750 or, or, or probably Leonard's team, he rejected that as well. Instead, he decided to sign to fight the WBC Worldweight Champion, who was Sol Mambi, for a unification bout, and that was going to earn him a million dollars. However, the fight fell through, basically down to his promoter, Howard Smith, who had disappeared... Amid allegations that he had been involved 
in in, in twenty one point three million dollars worth of fraud against the Wells Fargo National Bank. So Smith, whose real name actually ended up being Ross Fields, was later sentenced to ten years in prison and was convicted on twenty nine counts of fraud and embezzlement. So Pryor ended up rejecting Sugar Ray Leonard for the fight he really wanted. In actual fact, thinking he's going to get a unification belt about at light welterweight or super lightweight, however you want to say it, and earning a million dollars and it all fell through. So bless him, it, it ended in disappointment. But it was a light at the end of the tunnel because Roberto Duran was looking like that was going to happen. 750000 in April 1981. But again, Pryor turned it down. And it was down to the fact that I, I believe he was waiting to get a new contract sorted out with his manager, who was uh, Buddy La Rosa. By the time they eventually agreed a new, had a new agreement in place, Duran had moved on. And um, and in actual fact, I think did he fight? Was it was it Hagler? I, I can't. We may even been Hearns. Um, I can't quite remember. But he ended up getting a bigger fight, Duran. So he missed out on Roberto Duran, and he also missed out on Sugar Ray Leonard. So that was in a short period of time of around five months. So <laughs> <laughs> you're looking at the Gaytan Hart fight happened on the 22nd of November, 1980. December was obviously the Sugar Ray Leonard incident where they were talking about that fight. You fast forward to 1981 and April of 1981. This is when he's given the opportunity to fight Duran, who then eventually moves on because of the legal issues that you were talking about regarding contracts. So them two huge names that people will talk about Aaron Pryor as never having fought or people that he should have fought in his career. He missed out on both of them. The first time because he decided he didn't want to take it because he didn't feel he was getting offered enough money. The second time because of obviously legal issues and contractual obligations. He missed out on two of the biggest names of that generation. It's such a shame that over that short five-month period between 80 and 81 that he wasn't able to get any of them two fights signed because... For me, win, lose, or draw any of them two fights, and he would have been remembered, as you rightly said, that he could have put in, been put in there as part of a Fab Five or even a Fab Six, if you include Arguello as well. But that would have been, for me, that would have solidified his legacy. And that is what yeah. is disappointing when you look back on the history of it and you look back at them short five months. Why he never took that first Ray Leonard fight and the offer, I, I wouldn't know. I really would love to have known why he didn't take that fight at the time because there was a lot of money being offered. So he'd gone from a hundred grand to being offered seven hundred and fifty grand, which again equates probably equates to a couple of million in this day and age. So I bet that's one thing you know that he definitely regretted. I'm sure that would have been something that he regretted. And it's interesting because, obviously, as we come on to another story in a few moments about Sugar Ray Leonard and Aaron Pryor, it'll be interesting to know what would have happened in that fight should it have gone down. So then he comes back and he faces Lennox Blackmore, 27th of June, 1981, beats Lennox Blackmore and then goes into another defence against the John Johnson in November of 1981. Again, going back to one of his earlier fights, we're talking about how ferocious his style was. <laughs> he comes out again, out the blocks. <laughs> you can't help himself, can he? He just comes running out. He likes to take a few to give a few. Uh, and what happens again? He gets dropped in round number one. Juan Johnson, known in Detroit circles around the Trump as Mr. Excitement. The way Flash move around the ring, I've never seen this before. I think he's trying to warm himself up. This could be the case here. Well, Johnson goes to the attack and lands a combination to the head of Pryor. Gets a smile back from the champion. You may see early knockdowns. There it is right there. 
Johnson. And Ray Leonard called that seconds, uh, literally a second before now. Fryer saying, I'm fine, gets right up and goes after Dewan Johnson. And that's what we expected too, Remember, Tim, they were both going to box. Both guys were going to box. Now look what they're doing. He did. Uh, uh, Dwayne Johnson was actually undefeated, seventy and zero at the time, and uh, and he, yeah, it, it, that's just prime style. Um, you know, he was never gonna, he's never gonna be a guy that's gonna be cautious at the start. The way he see it is, he's gonna attack a guy from the off. He's gonna put him under pressure, and most of the time they wilted. And and this was at the time where he was on this fantastic run. He was just knocking everybody out. Everybody he was facing. It was it was incredible, uh, and Johnson was on, on the unfortunate side of another KO. Lost, which in the seventh round. Um, he then obviously went on to, to, to fight Miguel Montilla. He also, again, another knockout, 12th round of 15 on March 21st, 1982. And it was at this point that Pryor signed to face Sugar Ray Leonard. He actually signed to face Sugar Ray Leonard after the Montilla fight for the Undisputed Worldweight Championship in the fall of 1982 for 750000 So he finally did get that big, big signing on you know, that big name and that big purse. So he was happy, obviously, over the moon. And on the May 14, 1982, I think that was when it was scheduled to, to happen. So the Sunday before the bout where Leonard was supposed to fight and defend his title in Buffalo, it was that Sunday that Pryor decided to drive to Buffalo from Cincinnati and he went there to taunt Leonard just to hype the fight. Uh, and, you know, if anyone knows Aaron Pryor, they will know that he loves it all. You know, what time is it? Hot time. And he had his, his, his whole entourage of him. He had a great persona and people like to be around him from what I've read and what I've heard. So prior on the way to Buffalo to, to just wind Leonard up, he hears in, on his car radio the news that Leonard had actually suffered a detached retina in his left eye and the fight was off. And he actually said he pulled, his actual words were, I pulled off the side of the road and I cried. And that's what, and basically that was it. Uh, Leonard retired six months later, and he never got that big fight. Crazy, isn't it? Like that is a story where you think to yourself, like, what could have been? And I think the the, the story that we've not included is the sparring story. The, the one of the most famous stories is cool. about the fact that they sparred each other, and and how initially. When they got in the ring, Ray Leonard started to, to get the better of Aaron Pryor first and foremost, and then Aaron Pryor started to turn it around, and as he got into sort of the second and the third round, that's where Pryor started to turn it on, and he started to actually hurt Leonard, and as a result of that, Leonard's trainer said, no, that's it, sparring's done, it's over, as <laughs> Pryor was supposedly bossing Ray Leonard, inspiring behind closed doors. So that was quite interesting. That was something that made me think, just imagine if that fight would have happened and two disappointments of the Ray Leonard fight and one of the Duran fight. And if people have said about Aaron Pryor, when I've spoke to people about him and about his career and you get people that make their own comments on social media about him, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, he had a he had a really really good career. He had some significant fights. His this legendary night we're covering is is the defining one for his career. But he never faced Ray Leonard or he never faced Duran or he never got to go with Hearns. And people always talk about that about his career. But then when you go deeper into it and you look at the fact that he was so close to getting that big fight with Sugar Ray Leonard, he'd signed for it this time. He'd accepted the money. He's driving down to go and watch. Ray Leonard in his fight against Roger Stafford. He's going to go and taunt him. He's going to be ringside. He's going to get a few tips about what he can do in the ring against him. He's signed to fight him later that year. 
that happens and he hears about it on the radio of all places so it's not even like he's been told by anybody like you know you don't have the social media to tell you this in 1982 you don't have you know mobile phones to tell you this in 1982 you're literally driving down the road on the way there he's probably thinking yeah i'm going to give this guy some shit i'm going to say this about him i'm going to say that about him and then all of a sudden excitement just turns to misery in a matter of seconds after hearing that radio broadcast and as you said he rightly did talk about the fact that he pulled over and literally cried in his car and that you know massively mentally affected him but it wouldn't affect his career of course because this is where we lead into the Aguayo fight he had one more fight before we get into the Aguayo fight which was against Akio Kameda and defended his title yet again and then this is where now we're going to switch over and we're going to move into the career of Alexis Aguayo of course before we lead into the build-up for this fight so when you talk about Alexis Aguayo then you talk about a guy who was an amazing fighter, a three-weight world champion, potentially could have been a fourth-weight world champion, a guy that went into exile into the USA, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, a guy that just had a legendary career, and we're going to talk a little bit about how that legendary career came about, and the first thing we're going to look at is the fact that he turned pro all the way back in 1968. He turned professional 1968, so before he got in the ring with Aaron Pryor, he had a, an already long career leading up to that, and I think it was I think it was significant to talk about the fact that his career would would consist of some amazing names. And when as we go through the course of his career, you're going to talk about guys that he went in to beat, who ended up then going on to become champions, which I found quite amazing to to know that he actually is more of a legend than maybe what people think he is because. You know, he's beating guys that ended up going on to become champions later on down the line, which I think is is a really good part of his resume, which is underrated. So I think the first big fight for him really came on the 16th of February, 1974. So at this point, he'd amassed a record of 31 wins with three victories and 26 by way of knockout. And he fought for the WBA featherweight championship of the world against Ernesto Marcel. So this was his first big test. 15 round fights back then as well, remember. So we've not got the standard 12 that we've got today. 15 round fights. And that's one thing will come across throughout Aguayo's career is that he was genuinely a natural 15 round fighter. That is something that you don't say a lot about fighters Obviously, in this last couple of generations, this is a guy who was naturally gifted and naturally had the endurance and stamina to go the full 15 rounds. So he would go in there against Ernesto Marcel and he would actually lose his first attempt at a world title. It was a tough fight for him, that. And I think that was the one where he learned a hell of a lot in that fight to take him into what would end up being a legendary career. Absolutely. And Alexis Aguero, as I said at the top of the show, he really is one of my favourite fighters, not just the way he was in the ring, but his persona outside of it. He was, For me, just sort of recently I run through sort of all the divisions and tried to sort of pick my top 10 across the divisions. It was no, you know, it was pretty hard to do. But for me, he's one of the best super featherweights that's ever lived he really is and he is sort of overshadowed by some great fighters at lightweight obviously but an excellent fighter at lightweight he had absolutely no problems fighting Southport which is that will come into but obviously this was a big fight for him he, he, he's obviously taken on is it Ernest, Ernesto Marcel and he was a Panamanian Marcel and he won the title from a Venezuelan guy called Antonio Gomez in 1972 and was only ever stopped by the great and the legend and the greatest ever lightweight. We've also done a, a career profiles on. Have a listen, is Roberto Duran. 
his experience was just too much for Aguero at the time in 1974, and and Aguero ended up losing on points as you as you rightly said. And and one thing Marcel said after the fight is Aguero has a strong punch and is a good boxer. Someday he will be a champion, and he weren't wrong. No, he certainly weren't. <laughs> he certainly weren't. <laughs> so in 1974, he had another four fights after this Marcel defeat, which would be essentially the making of him because then he would go into later on in 1974, specifically the 23rd of November, and he would go in against another legendary fighter by the name of Ruben Olivares. Now, Ruben Olivares was a guy that had been around, obviously, for a long time leading up to this particular fight, but he had actually won the WBA title in July of 1974 because Ernesto Marcel actually vacated the title after his victory over Alexis Arguello. So he vacated the title and then Ruben Oliveras won the title in July of 1974 and then defended it against Arguello. And this... This would be a significant, really, for him, because this would be the moment where he gets crowned a champion. And just to put a bit of context to Ruben Olivares, Ruben Olivares was a bantamweight legend. If you've not seen any of his fights, when he was down at the bantamweight division, he was an absolute legend. He, he won... Cha- he, he, just For me, just... Again, he's a guy we could probably do a career profile on, and people will think to themselves, who's Ruben Olivares? Who's, who is this guy? He actually is a, a legend. Bantamweight and featherweight champion. The guy moved up through the weights and won two championships. For me, was one of one of the great fighters of all time. That he's probably underrated by a lot of people because they probably don't know who he is. So if you've not heard about Ruben Olivares, then go and check this guy out. A fantastic fighter. But as we were talking about a little bit earlier about how Aguayo is an endurance man, a man of stamina, this was a really back and forth fight, and it went all the way into the thirteenth round. This was where inevitably the endurance would come through. And this is where you'd start to see Aguayo as that endurance fighter because he would take Olivares to the 13th round. After the first few rounds of the fight, you know, he's struggling a little bit. He's he's doing his usual counter-punching techniques against Olivares. And then all of a sudden gets into the 13th. He's kept that stamina in the bank and he's absolutely unleashed a flurry of combinations and ends up going on to stop Olivares in the 13th round, successfully then picking up his first world title. That was the significant start to his career. This was the start of his free weight reign. And this, for me, was probably, before some of the other fights that we'll talk about, this was probably one of them legacy-defining fights. I like to call them legacy-defining fights because... These are the ones that set off a trend and set off a pattern of things that will go down in history. And this was one of them for me. Round 13. Champion of the world, Alexis Arguello. 
I, I couldn't agree with you more. And this was, and Ruben Oliveira's, as you say, as a bantamweight was just brilliant. And then maybe it was um, a matter of going through the divisions and moving up to featherweight, fighting a natural featherweight, probably a bit bigger than a featherweight, as we, we know he moves on through the weight, Aguayo. So I think uh, Ruben Oliveira's, I think it was a matter of age and a matter of the fact that he's probably gone a weight too far for a natural, a natural featherweight. Saying that, I mean, as you say today, this is a 15 round. As you say today, it would have ended in 12 rounds. And if it had have ended in 12 rounds, Oliveres would have won the fight. He was ahead on the scorecard. So it just shows you that these, at the time, these how important for some of these guys these 15 rounds were. And it was only in the next round, the 13th round, when they both landed simultaneously, literally simultaneously on each other. And it was the left hook in the 13th that Aguayo landed that really hurt Oliveira's. Yeah, he, he hit the deck and, and, and that was it. And, and even uh, Aguayo after the fight, he said, I was fighting for my life. And Oliveira's hurt me in the 8th, the ninth, and the 10th rounds. I felt like I might go down in the 10th. This is a very happy and proud day for, for myself and my country. It certainly was a proud day for himself and his country because he made the country <laughs> of Nicaragua proud. He'd become a featherweight <laughs> yeah. champion. This was the start of a legendary reign. So... Between 1974 and 1977, Aguayo would fight 16 times, five of which were defences of this featherweight crown. So he goes for three years being featherweight champion, fighting all different names through boxing history, and then gets into 1978. So he moves up to super featherweight in 1978, and this is where he then becomes a two-weight world champion in what was an absolute war with Alfredo Escalera. This was a fight that, if you've not watched, is a YouTube fight. If you're going to go onto YouTube and watch a fight after listening to this episode, as well as watching the main fight that we're talking about, go and watch this one, because this was an absolute bloody war. This was a battle. This was certainly one of them fights that, again, was underrated, unless you were from that generation, and you're listening to this now, and you was alive during that generation. You'll know that this was an absolutely amazing fight, but for the benefit of those who wasn't, like ourselves, who have got to look back, on the footage, this was this was one of them that you should go back and watch. You really should go back and watch this. This fight was was so significant. It was actually named the Bloody Battle of Bayamon. Escalera actually ended up with a broken nose and cuts over his eye and cuts on his mouth as well. And that was why it was billed Bloody Battle of Bayamon because of how bloody this fight was. It was significant because not only would this end up becoming a second weight world title for Arguello, but he would go in there and he would pick up that second world weight title and go on to be able to continue on this legendary run. And this was something you were talking about, about how he was an amazing super featherweight and how much he did at super featherweight. This was the start of it. Beating Escalera was, was amazing because Escalera had been the champion for three years in the lead-up to that fight. He'd been the champion from 1975 to 1978. So he wasn't a mug. He wasn't a slouch. He was an amazing fighter himself. And he's a fighter you should go back and have a quick look on. Because he's one that certainly had his own reputable nights. And this was one of them. Even though he came out on the wrong side of it. And Aguayo stopped him within 13 rounds. This, for me, was, was an amazing night for him. This was the night where, again... Legacy defining, you can't really name it anything other than legacy defining because we're talking about it. We look back in the history books, we look back on the footage and we look at it and think, this was one of them fights that you can't not help but look back on. He is sending, he is sending Aguayo to the neutral corner, the corner under Aguayo's right eye. 
Ah, McCanny is worried about the cut on the upper lip. He's asked the ring doctor. They are going to stop this fight. They are going to stop this fight. And even, even as was the case when he knocked out Olivares in the 13th round to become the featherweight champion. Now, they stop the fight in the 13th round. And it's a technical knockout for Alexis Arguello. He becomes the junior lightweight champion of the world. It really was a fantastic fight, and both were a, were a bloody mess. I mean, Alexis Aguero didn't really, I think, a cut opened up sort of late in the fight, whereas Escalara had to sort of fight on with, with the damage to him. It was it was brutal, and it was an absolute stunning fight. And, and one thing, I mean, Aguero, you know, he was just a slow, he was a bit of a slow star, Aguero. He liked to take his time, and he was patient. Uh, I suppose that's a better way of putting it. He was a patient starter. He, never, he wasn't nothing like Aaron Pryor, who was just a machine, whereas... You know, Aguero just eased his way into fights and then he would gradually get better round by round. And, and this was no different, but Escalada took a bit of a pounding. Uh, obviously, it was in Puerto Rico, though. He was Puerto Rican and also he, he fought at his home. So the Puerto Ricans were backing him. Of course, it was promoted by our old pal, Sean, as well, Don King. <laughs> uh, another, another, another great fight by the lad. I mean, you can't knock him. The amount of fights this guy puts together. I mean, the amount of legendary nights that have Don King in is, is remarkable, really. But... In some, basically Howard Cosell as well, actually, he said this is the worst and the most bloodiest, brutal fights he had ever seen in history since Emery Cooper fought Muhammad Ali up at, up at the old Arsenal uh, in their second fight. So you can imagine, if anyone ever seen that fight, I'm sure most people would have. It's just as bloody as that. It's, it's, it's a mess. I mean, the, the footage on YouTube, sometimes it's difficult to really work out how bad it was, but... You can tell. I mean, you can see with this couple of times they had Zoom in, you can see it was a mess, and then eventually it stopped. But the main talking point at the time was the, the other current, well, obviously this being super featherweight, you know, the weight above was the lightweight, and who was the lightweight king? Mr. Roberto Duran. And, and he was the guy that was, he was running things. So, and you had the super featherweight, the new champion, Aguayo, and it was actually, I think it was Angelo Dundee that said that he fought that Aguero might be the only fighter that could beat Duran at lightweight. So that was that was on the in, that was it. That was the incentive. That was the hope that finally Aguero would fight a big name in Duran. Saying that, I mean Oliveira's and Escalera's two great great names and and an excellent fight. And obviously, they would fight again, which we'd also mention further on. So just touching on the the lightweight division and touching on obviously Duran being the king of the lightweight division. It was interesting because late 1978, you know, he decides to, to move up a weight and he decides to go one step further and move to lightweight. So he goes to Madison Square Garden in New York. It's in July. It's in the summer. He decides to go to lightweight and test the waters there. At this point, he's still the WBC Super Featherweight Champion. He still holds that title. It's not like he's been stripped of that title. In this day and age, he's probably have been stripped of that title as soon as he won it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as soon exactly. as he won it, he would have been stripped of it. He would have been made to defend it within a number of days. <laughs> uh, but saying that, it's the WBC, so maybe he would have been made a champion in recess. So at this, <laughs> at this point, in particular, he moves up to fight 
Villamir Fernandez. Now, Villamir Fernandez is probably not a familiar name to, to most of the listeners, but for anybody who's an avid boxing historian, you will know that he did actually lose to Duran for the WBA lightweight title in 1977. And then later on down the line, post the fight with Alexis Agüero, he would then go on to lose to Howard Davis, who we spoke about a little bit earlier, and he'd also lose to Hilmer Kente, who was a WBA champion in the lightweight division at that time as well. And that was in 1980. So his second attempt at world title ended in defeat. So he wasn't no slouch. So this was the opportunity for Alexis Arguello to move up and test them waters. And this would be where we talk about when people take it a step too far. But it was an interesting story, really, when you look at Arguello's career, because it wasn't really. He did lose the fight to Fernandez. He had a 10-rounder. It was a majority decision victory. For Fernandez, and then you think to yourself, if you're a fan at this point, you're probably thinking, ah, maybe stay down at your best weight, which is super feather. You're a dominant super featherweight champion. Obviously, as we go on through the story, we'll hear about him moving back up again. But this was significant because for me, he steps up, he loses in majority decision. It's only a ten rounder. He is a stamina fighter. He is a long distance fighter. Maybe that was the difference on the night. And I think if you do go back and have a look at that, I think you'll see that it is. And that was the mistake yeah. that was made in this one. It was a calculated risk, but it didn't pay off. But it was significant in the sense that would we see him stay at lightweight or would we see him go back down? Well, he would. He'd move back down. He'd go back down and defend his super featherweight title instead. Yeah, and that's a great point. I think that exactly what it was. He went in to, to test the wall and the fact that it was a 10 round and maybe Fernandez, maybe his team pushed that and said, you know, we ain't going to go 15 with Aguero. And, and it was the right move because, you know, as I say, Aguero would have a few, maybe about the first five rounds. He would almost feel his way into the fight and it sounds strange today when you talk about 12-rounders because almost you're halfway through. So maybe it wouldn't have been a, a nice time for him to have fought. It was the perfect time to fight in the area that he was in, which is the late 70s and then going into the 80s. So I think that was what it was. I think more than the weight in a way. But I think in his mind, deep down, he probably wanted to just test the water because obviously Duran was around. And I thought, for me personally, I think they mention it as well. And I think they say that, you know, this was a, a fight for him to see how he got on. Uh, unfortunately, it's a 10-man. If it had gone 15, who knows? But he did move on. He beats Leon in 78. And then he gets the Escalara, the second fight, which is another excellent fight, which also ended in the 13th round. It's actually the Ruben Oliveira's. He knocks him, He finishes him in the 13th. Escalara, first fight, 13th. Escalara, second fight, 13th. Finish him off in Italy. So it was a bit of a, it wasn't unlucky for Aguero, that's for sure. I mean, it was it was on, on fire that night and it was just a, another stunning left hand. It was a left hand that floored Escalara, who tried to get back up to his feet, but he ended up sort of falling back into his corner. The on-the-site doctor after that sort of had a little look at him. and But Aguero, he basically, he, had, he ended up calling it off. It ended, basically. I think it was to do with the doctor. I can't remember precisely. I'm sure it was the doctor that called it off in the end. And funny enough, story was the on-the-site doctor wanted Aguero after the fight to go back to the hospital because he actually had a cut, quite a serious cut. So uh, Aguero had a flight to catch from Rome the very next day. So he decided that he would, he, he's not going to. So in the end, he didn't want to go to the hospital. So in the end, he boarded a train from a place called uh, Rimini, which I'm guessing that was where the fight was. And the doctor actually decided to travel with Aguero and perform plastic surgery on Aguero's cut while Grail was awake. So that just shows you how much of a fucking absolute Trojan that Kingsley was. He didn't give a shit. 
I've got a flight to catch or I've got a train. In, instead, actually, just get on a train and then just do me cuts on the train. And that's basically <laughs> what he did. And, it, and, and that just says a lot about Aguero and what he was like as a person. Oh, I'll tell you what, he was one-eyed bastard, wasn't he? He was having his, <laughs> he was having, he was having his eye purgically put back together. And <laughs> he's just, you know, just casually reading the paper, probably on the train, you know, <laughs> to go and catch his flight. It's ridiculous. This just goes to show you how much of a crazy guy he really was and a hard man he really was as well. So, yeah, you talk about the Escalera fight, gets the victory, and then he moves on to... Uh, I would not I would say the next fight is significant, but I'd say more the aftermath and the controversy surrounding this next particular fight was what would set the events of Aguayo's life and his family's life and, and the way things would go for him over the next few years. So his next fight then, he goes in to defend his WBC super featherweight title in New York against Rafael Limon. So Rafael Limon, another great fighter, another fighter on Alexis Arguello's resume, who would actually go on to be a two-time world champion after the fight with Arguello, which is what I was referring to earlier when I was talking about a few of them champions and a few of them guys on his resume who would go on to do great things in their own careers, respectively. So at the, at the time... You had a crisis going on in his home country of Nicaragua. So you had governments which were opposing each other and you had a dictatorship going on. And then you had a particular group which were called the Sardinista National Liberation Front. As the fight is just about to take place, Aguayo's in the ring. He then gets draped with this flag of the Sardinista National Liberation Front. And he's draped in it. And... They essentially see that as a bit of a. They don't see. They don't see it as support anyway. Put it that way. They don't see that as a supporting contribution. They see that as a. He's opposing us here. We don't like that. So he goes in and he beats Rafael Limon, gets the victory over him, defends his title yet again. But then, just a few short days later, this fight took place on the 8th of July. 11 days later, on the 19th of July, after Arguello had obviously got this victory, defended his title yet again. The Sardinista National Liberation Front confiscated around half a million dollars worth of Arguello's assets, forcing the family to go into exile to the USA. Yep, and, and from 1979, exactly, he, he had to move to Miami. He took his family and he moved out of there. And Miami at the time had a strong Hispanic heritage. It was a place where Duran went after no mass as well. So, you know, that just shows you he felt welcome in Miami and... And Alexis Aguero was pretty much the same, and, and they accepted him in open arms, and they adored him. And he ended up becoming a hero in Miami, within the Hispanic sort of heritage and, and those that were Hispanic in the area. And and, and yeah, he he had his house seized, and and, and they took over the, the Sandinistan party, a socialist political party. They 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 ended up exiling him as well as many others as well. So Aguero was unable to return home, and and you know Limon was a, a great fight, as you say. You know, one thing you, I will say is Rafael Lamont, just going off on a side note, Rafael Lamont had fought Bobby Chacon twice already before this fight, and he had won one and drawn one, and they actually had another couple of fights after, and they are four brilliant fights, and it may be a tale we should look at doing for legendary nights, but Lamont was a fantastic fighter, Southport, and, and he got rid of him in America in the 11th, not the 13th this time. But then he moved on to fight Bobby Chacon, a.k.a. the schoolboy. Obviously in exile, living in Miami now. He went on another fight that's also on YouTube. Bobby was a former and future world champion, a lot like Le Mans. Another brilliant fight where Chacon went down in the seventh and the referee ended up stopping the fight. But an, another great fight. And it just this, this is where I was 
with, in terms of super featherweight, I honestly cannot. I mean, the only person, I hate to say it, that I could probably say could match Alexis Aguero at super featherweight would be someone like a, a Floyd Mayweather Jr. He's the only guy. Because, you know, Floyd Mayweather Jr. for me at super featherweight was brilliant and lightweight. I thought that was the best. But that would have been a fantastic fight. Who knows what could have happened. But here's me going off on the side note. But, yeah, Limon, then Chacon, and then it, and it moved on. And we had another couple of fights after that for fighting. Another double in Rolando Navarrete in the 27th of April, 1980. So that was another victory over yet again another fighter who would eventually go on to become a world champion, <laughs> adding another future world champion to his resume. So, you know, you're looking at three to four, uh, well, maybe more, about four to five, either former world champions or future world champions on his resume there. And, and that, again, starts to tell you the depths of this guy's resume and this guy's boxing career. And this is before this legendary night. So he's done all this before we get into this fight with Aaron Price which is crazy when you look at it like that most fighters would dream to have that career twice over but yet Alexis Aguayo at this point has already had that career hasn't he and then that's what's crazy about it so obviously he gets that win over Navarrete and then it's where he decides he wants to start to go to test the water again moves back up to lightweight and has fights with Cornelius Edwards, Jose Luis Ramirez, Robert Vasquez and then the next significant fight in his career for me was against Scotland's very own Jim Watt, who was at the time the WBC lightweight champion of the world. And Jim Watt was a great fighter in his own right. You know, we all remember Jim Watt for his time as a pundit on Sky. Most of us from this this sort of last couple of generations just remember some of the sayings that he would use <laughs> that he would use to say <laughs> on Sky Sports. But people forget that this guy was a legitimate champion, a legitimate world champion, a great world champion, and a name that popped up earlier on the episode was a guy that came from that 1976 Olympics, Howard Davis Jr. He'd actually defend his lightweight title against Howard Davis Jr. in 1980 successfully and also ending his undefeated run of 13 fights at the time. So he, in 1981, was the WBC lightweight champion, which is where Alexis Arguello comes in, of course. And Alexis Arguello goes the full 15 rounds with Jim Watt but then dethrones him via a unanimous decision. And this is the first time he's came over to UK as well. So he's up the Empire Pool at Wembley. So he'd come over, he picked up the victory, and he became a three-weight world champion by beating Jim Watt. The judges scores are as follows. Dick Young scores 147 for Arguello, 137 for Arguello. Massive. Arguello on the first judges' cards. Scores 147 for Arguello. 143 for Arguello is the new champion. Judge Howard! Judge Howard! 147 for Arguello. 143 for Arguello. It's a unanimous decision, and Alexis Arguello, 29 years old, is the new WBC Yes, and, and the other thing to mention is with all these guys, Limon, Southpaw, Navarrete, Southpaw, Jose Edwards, Southpaw, Jose Luis Ramirez, Southpaw, and obviously Jim Watt, Southpaw. Not only did he fight Southpaws, but he also travelled to Puerto Rico, he travelled to Italy, and as you rightly say, come over here to fight Jim Watt. This is why I absolutely love Alexis Aguero. The guy didn't care who he fought, he just wanted to make sure, he wanted to fight the best and to prove that he was the best. And, and the reason why he was such a great fighter, where he could actually fight these Southpaws, where today you'd see so many 
guys avoid southpaws. It's just the way he he would throw that right hand. He would have his left foot, and he would just sort of he would always have it on the outside. His footwork is immense when he fought southpaws. It was just perfect for him, and he would throw that right hand, and it just caused a lot of trouble. And and Jim Watt, well, he was in a lot of trouble basically, and he he did take a bit of a mauling over over the fifteen rounds. But Jim Watt, to his credit. You know, thirty-eight and seven at the time. He it was his last ever fight as well, but he was a he, he was a warrior, Jim Watt. And I, 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 do you know what? I didn't know it at the time when he used to commentate. Sometimes he would he would take laugh at me sometimes. But I took it upon myself to go back at sort of a couple of years ago and just have a look at Jim Watt. And he was a great lightweight. He really was. And as you say, you know, winning those titles and it was his fifth defense, his fifth defense of the title after winning it in nineteen seventy-nine. And and he did take a place in. And actually, he was after the fight. That what kept his humour and, and and the respect for Alexis Aguero. And that was the other thing with Alexis Aguero. He would go to his place, he'd go to Puerto Rico against a Puerto Rican and the fans are all Puerto Rican, but he'd walk away from a fight where they would love him. And the one thing we didn't mention, you know, just, just in terms of the way he would he'd beat the crap out of somebody and afterwards he'd go over and give them a cuddle and shake their hands and take them out for a pint. He was that type of fella. And, and Jim Watt, as I say, he came he came over here, he battered Jim Watt. He went in here, obviously, as as... You know, it would have been the favourite. People knew who Aguero was with the hope that Watt would win the fight. He didn't. got panned in. And Jim Watt did come out and say, um, I have a car business. And if I was to do an estimate on my face, I'll probably write it off. So that just says a lot about how much of a mess Jim Watt was in. But after the fight, once again, Alexis Aguero walked away from another country where we all loved him. And the Brits did from that point. The Brits looked at for Alexis Aguero, and then after that, we had the Ray Mancini fight, and, and I'll let you talk about Ray Mancini, because it, again, just describes how much of a lovely guy Alexis Aguero was. He certainly did, and, and just touching back on that victory over Jim Watt, this made him the sixth fighter in boxing history at this point to become a three-weight world champion, and only the second Latin American fighter to become a three-weight world champion, with the other one wow. being with Wilfred Benitez. So there you go. That just goes to show you what level of fighters he was in a company with. So the Ray Mancini fight then, as you rightly pointed out, that was his next fight. That was another great win for him. And I say he was a great win because, you know, this is a guy who would take on all comers. He would travel around to fight anybody, as you rightly just pointed out. And he would do it with, you know, great respect. And he would do it with great passion and he would do it with humble humbling words after fights you know and, and the <laughs> things he would do for fighters so he would go in there and he would defend his title successfully against Ray Mancini stopping Ray Mancini in in 14 rounds but it wasn't this that was the highlight of this particular night for me the highlight of the night after beating an undefeated Ray Mancini was to get Mancini in the ring at the end and basically when he's being interviewed by the broadcasters at the time he said he would do anything for Ray Mancini's dad, who at the time was, was quite ill at ringside and wanted to see his son become a world champion. And unfortunately, that wasn't the night. But the way Aguayo would talk about his father, who was sat there at ringside, who, who he would address in that interview, was, for me, just going to show the type of man that he was. And I think that particular interview was where it skyrocketed his popularity with 
fans across the world, especially in America. Obviously, he was an adopted American at this point. You know, they'd had him over there for a couple of years. You know, he was in exile over in America. But yeah, he was this Nicaraguan fighter who had won the hearts and minds of millions of people just because of a few words that he said, because it was genuine and it was from the heart. Arguello is with us here. Alexis, a really tremendous, magnificent championship performance. I know that you expected to get a very tough fight from Ray Mancini. Was he everything you expected? Well, I tell him from the beginning, uh, I had uh, the best condition in my life because I knew it. Mancini is one of the rated fighters. He's too young for sure, but I think in the near future, he's going to be one of the best fighters. Uh, of all time because he have a lot of determination and um, like I said from the beginning it was I expect a, a tough fight that was it you know you saw them and CBS all right let's take a look at the knockout in this 14th round it looked like two left hands hurt him and then the right hand finally sent him down well here's another uh, look at it well, well, that's the right hand and, and, and the belly and the and the, the solar plate was the the number one punch because I think Mancini is stronger than the head. But my trainer told me you start hitting the belly because you need it because you're slowing down the, his speed and uh, that's what I start to do it from the seven or eight uh, eight round. You were very patient throughout the fight. Your experience, I think, played a great role in the fact that you were uh, you were not flustered at any point even though early in the fight he was doing well beautiful he was doing beautiful but the my the the, the main thing that i have is my condition and uh, my resistance i am a 15 round fighter he's a 10 round fighter he was the what i expect if he made me trouble in the beginning i started controlling in the late round because i knew it Alexis, you are truly one of the class champions in boxing. Ray Mancini, when this fight was made, was very respectful of you. He felt it was a privilege to fight you. You two guys have conducted yourselves wonderfully. It's certainly a credit to the sport of boxing, which has enough problems outside of the ring. You two guys are a credit to what it's all about. Here is the challenger, Ray Mancini. Come on in here. That's what we're, that's what we're talking about. Thank you, Ray Mancini. I love you, Father. That's the most beautiful thing you have. Like I have my father, take good care of you. You're gonna be a good, good promise. And I promise, if I can do something for you, let me know, please. Thank you. Okay. It, it really was, and, and obviously, you know, you can see even Ray Mancini senior in his wheelchair, ringside, and he's, he's almost he's showing emotion because obviously, you know, I think it was his World War Two. I think he suffered from injuries in World War Two where he could have become a world champion, and it was because of those injuries and having to go to World War Two that he was unable to to fulfil his potential and win a world title. So, obviously, you know, having Ray at this time fighting for a world title and he was undefeated as well. But, yet, yeah, he, you know, Agreo just, it's just what he, what he did. He, he would, he would demolish people. When he, when he, when he got comfortable at lightweight, he was, he was terrific. And, and obviously, Ray Mancini was a great fighter as well. He actually did go on the following year to win the WBA lightweight title. So, you know, it just shows how many guys did, did, Agreo fought. It was just impressive. And, and it, it continued. I mean, we could keep going all day, Sean, uh, but, you know, just jumping on to sort of to, to, into 1982, obviously, which is the year of the prior fight. And he fights Andrew Gannigan, who was a 34-3 fighter at the time. He got rid of him in, in five. Another fight on YouTube. The ground dropped him in the second round. In one of, uh, 
in one of his toughest fights in the division. And that's what he said. It was the fourth last defence of the lightweight titles as well. And, um, it, you know, although he finished off Andrew Gannigan in, in five, it was a tough five or five. You know, I think it was the first sort of two, three rounds. He had a real go. Uh, and he put him under pressure, which was probably, maybe Aaron Primo even looked at that fight and thought, well, he, he was a bit uncomfortable. Maybe that's something he could do. And we all know what Pryor was like. So, and then after that, he, he fought Kevin Rooney. We all know Kevin Rooney as the trainer. Or he was, you know, he was a, a fantastic trainer for Mike Tyson. And we all know the ins and outs of how much how important Kevin Rooney was for Mike Tyson. And when he wasn't in the corner, he was a shadow of himself, Tyson Rooney. But you know, as a trainer, he's very well respected. The fight it was he's a guy that you know he was nineteen and one at the time. He wasn't a world beat. I think the one and only defeat he had before the Agrero fight was against David Moore. But Rooney was trained by Custom Martin and Teddy Atlas, so you know he had he had an excellent corner just the fact was he just wasn't that good and he ended in two rounds very quickly it's definitely a fight you could have a look at it's a, it's a, it's a devastating knockout and 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 that was when we eventually moved on to mr aaron Pryor. so this is it the build-up for this particular legendary night then so this was Aguayo's attempt to become a full weight world champion this was something that not often seen in boxing in that particular era. You see it a lot now. You've got Manny Pacquiao, eight-weight world champion from different divisions. Oscar De La Hoya, I think he was four or five weights. Floyd Mayweather. Many, many legendary names that will go down as Hall of Famers with all these world titles. But this was 1982. And you didn't have that many people doing that. You had some of your other previous legends that we've spoke about in the past. But this was a period of time where not many people were doing something like this. And this was Arguello's attempt at becoming a four-weight world champion. You don't beat an Aaron Pryor and you don't beat an Alexis Arguello until you absolutely destroy either fighter. Who's the hungrier fighter, you think? I don't know that at 1.6 and 1.5 million you can say anybody's hungry. Aaron Pryor wants a recognition Alexis Aguayo is fighting for history. That gives you a heck of an incentive that money can't. This was actually billed as the Battle of Champions. You know, previously we had Aaron Pryor. Uh, he was going into this fight as the defending WBA Super Lightweight Champion. And then obviously you had the former WBC Lightweight Champion. I believe he was still the WBC Champion at the time. Hence the word, the Battle of the Champions being billed for this yeah. particular one. And I think when you look at... This particular fight, and you talk, you listen to the careers that we've just given you a breakdown on there, I don't know who you would expect to be the betting favourite in this one. And I don't know what people's opinions would be on that. But actually, Aguayo was the betting favourite at 12-5. to 5. He was the betting favourite for this particular fight because he was the guy that had moved up significantly through the weights. And I think when you look back at his career and we've spoke about it in this episode, I can kind of understand now why given what he'd done, and given that some of them opponents that he beat ended up going on to become world champions in their own right. So, because of what he achieved, it just made you think, actually, yeah, he probably was the betting favourite, because prior, looking at his career and his resume up to this point, it wasn't as significant. So, that is probably why they put him as the betting favourite. And then you look at the purses for the fight as well. Very, very similar purses. Pryor got one6 million dollars for this wow. whereas Arguello's purse was 1.5 million very very close so it's practically like a 50-50 split that's that's really close in terms of the purses and again not something you see very often because you look at boxing and, 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 and how boxing works usually you see 
you know, fighters with the bigger draw, the fighters that bring more of the crowd or fighters that bring the TV with them as a result. But in this one, this was a fight between two very, very popular fighters that had made it. And this was a very, very close split purse, which, again, you don't really see a lot of in this day and age. And what was really, really good was the build-up to it in terms of the press conference. That particular press conference was amazing. And it, I think the <laughs> legendary words that came from that was from a certain Mr. Bob Arum. So Bob Arum, in the press conference, basically goes on to say, you don't beat an Alexis Arguello or you don't beat an Aaron Pryor until you absolutely destroy them. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I, I, that we, we put out on the little video for the uh, preview, which we'll, probably, we'll put out again when we do release it. Um, but it really was great. Uh, and, and you know, even I put, we put a bit of Burt Sugar in there and, and Burt Sugar was, you could tell he was just over the moon. You know, he, the way you see it was it wasn't about the money. I mean, they're earning 1.5 million at the time. It's a ridiculous amount of money. 1982 just shows you, I mean, obviously, the, the, the Fab Four, they were earning the big, big money. They were earning probably over that. But this was the first fight. You know, we've spoken about the money that Pryor was earning. He was doubling his money for this fight. He was a hungry fighter. He wanted that recognition. He wanted that big name. And this was it. This was it. This was the guy that was tempted, attempting to become a four-weight world champion, which was unthinkable at the time. And I think the only person that eventually did do it is someone we've got in a career profile today, which is Thomas Hearns. He was the first, first boxer in history to ever do it. And Aguero was very close. If he'd have won this fight, it would have happened. Obviously, the fight as well, one thing to mention, it was at the Orange Bowl, which is in Miami, Florida. Very completely in Aguero's favour, even down to the announcement as well, which was a prior, he did mention that he, he wasn't happy with the fact that the announcement had called him Alexis Aguero, Mr. Alexis Aguero, and he just called prior Aaron Pryor. And he wasn't <laughs> happy with it from the off. And, and you can actually see it, it's very iconic where... Aguero was pissed off with it. I mean, not Aguero, sorry. I was so pissed off with it that he's standing there looking at it. Just before they start, he's standing looking at Aguero, opposite coins, and just pointing at him, just pointing at him, shaking his head. He's saying to him, I'm going to get you, and I'm going to prove, I'm going to just shut this whole stadium up. And, and I think the one point to pick up is, is the fact that Aaron Pryor's team, they actually did try to push a 12-round fight. And we've, we, you mentioned it earlier, Sean, and you were spot on that, 15 rounds was Alexis Aguero, and he wanted 15 rounds, whereas Pryor obviously felt, if we get a 12-rounder, I could probably win it on points, and um, if not, stop him. Obviously, uh, we're being Pryor being Pryor, he, he would have thought he would have stopped him. He was on his fantastic round as well. I think this is his 26th fight, or, his or he had actually 25 knockouts, straight knockouts, and this was, this was going to be his 26th. In the end, obviously, it ended up becoming a 15-rounder, and uh, as you say, battle of the champions, Everything was set up for this fight to be an absolute classic, and boy, did they deliver. Well, this was also Pryor's sixth defence of that WBA title. And just a little story that I picked up in, in the research for this episode was that something I didn't know before. Now, I have watched this fight before doing the Legendary Knights episode, but I never knew that literally prior to them walking out to do the ring walks, that a, a man was detained trying to get into the dressing room of Alexis Arguello with a weapon, with a loaded weapon. Now, that was something that I completely wow. didn't know about at all until you do the depths 
of the internet and you dig and there's some fantastic articles out there about Alexis Arguello and his career and Aaron Pryor in his career as well. But this was one that I didn't even know about. So you wouldn't have even thought that there was a crazed man trying to get into Alexis Arguello's dressing room <laughs> literally minutes before he's about to do his ring walk. And yet when he comes out and you watch it and you get him in the ring and you get the announcements, he's as cool as a cucumber. He's just like, yep, just going to carry on. But this was a guy that obviously had, had seen it all, done it all, and was ready to try and do it all again. So this is it then. This is the legendary night, the tale of Pryor versus Aguello. The fight itself, amazing. It's, it's the first word I'm going to use to describe this fight. Amazing. So the first round of the fight was absolutely crazy. Frantic. Pryor spl- literally sprinting out of the blocks like he's Usain Bolt, going to centre ring, going there to, to, to get the centre ring straight away. And he wasn't afraid in this fight, Aaron Pryor, as he wasn't in his whole career, was to take a few, to give a few. And that was what he was all about. And this is what he did in the first round. He tries to take centre ring from Aguayo, who was happy to sit on the back foot and counterpunch. And both of them in that first round landed significant punches enough to hurt each other. And that was, you know, you knew you were going to have a good fight from that first round. Aaron Pryor has been known to charge out at the opening bell. Round one. Pryor with the first punch. He scores with the right hand. Up tempo right from the opening bell. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if someone gets knocked down the first round. Pryor, perpetual motion. He is right on top of Arguello, who gets off the ropes. Crowd already starting to cheer. Arguello with the right hand that scores on Pryor, whose legs buckle for a moment. Pryor seems to be hurt. Alex went to the body and was able to hurt Pryor for a while. Which is exactly what Larry Merchant was just mentioning. Those uppercuts by Alex and that overhand right is very effective in Pryor's uh, style. Pryor has now slowed down just for the moment. Pryor has been knocked down. He will say, yes, I'll get knocked down and take a count of one, two, or three. But my opponent will get knocked down and take a count of eight, nine, or ten. And that has been the story. Oh, it was just, it was a ferocious pace, wasn't it? And, And Pryor, obviously... Pissed off for the announcer, desperate to get the big name, and he did. He literally threw out the box, and 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 Aguero, to his credit, he fought back. You know, Aguero is not one to take a step back. He will, he will try to take the centre of the ring. So I think they both attempted to push each other back, and and I think for me, Pryor was the one who just got the better of the exchanges, and he just threw some of the bigger bombs, I suppose, because they were throwing big, big, heavy shots, and. The second round was, was pretty much the same. For me, I thought Aguero landed the cleaner shots in the second, although Pryor was throwing more. And, and you know, the, the crowd were on their feet. You could hear the crowd. It was it was just unbelievable. Like, the atmosphere and the fight itself was just crazy. And it was it was actually um, in after the second round as well, which is something I didn't realise. Like, many times I've watched this fight, I can't even tell you because this is just a, it's just a brilliant fight. I mean, people talk about Hagler, you know, Gatty Wald. This is one of these fights where, you know, the first round, the second round, it's almost, it's, it's a constant that very rarely you have them stepping back. It, they will they will go at each other, they'll be on each other's chest. But, the techni- you know, technically they're, they're astute and they're, they're just masterclass, really, at times. Although they're willing, as you say, to take a shot. And Aguero's looking to be normal pace himself and Pryor was not allowing him to do that. And it was actually the second round that Panama Lewis actually says, give me that bottle, the bottle that I mixed. Give me, give, me, give me that drink now that I mix. One that I mix. And I didn't realise at the time, because I know it happens later on. So in the second round, he actually gives him the bottle. So we will talk about the bottle later on. But yeah, the, the bottle that he mixed, he gives him in the second round. And then obviously the third round, again, exactly the same. 
So it's an interesting first half of the fight. You know, the first six rounds, seven rounds are interesting in the sense that it's Aaron Pryor's aggressiveness against the counter-punching skills uh, of the slick fighter that was Alexis Arguello. And if you're watching that fight and you're trying to score it, it's difficult. You've got to kind of give it what you like in this particular fight. And for me, watching this fight back, I was looking at Aaron Pryor sort of taking the first, not every single round in that first sort of six, seven rounds, but I think he took a good chunk of them rounds, more so on the aggressiveness. He did land quite a few clean shots, but then Arguello did also land quite a few clean shots when he was counter-punching. So he did make it difficult to kind of sit back and really try to score it. So... I sat there and I thought to myself, you know, this was this was literally a tale of two halves with this particular fight because we refer back to the previous conversations in the episode about Alexis Aguayos being the stamina and the endurance and the guy that wants to go 15 rounds. It was scheduled for the 15 rounds. And you kind of knew going into the sort of second half of the fight... Aguayo was going to pick it up. Aguayo did actually get a cut on his eye on the sixth round as well. If he didn't pick that up in the fight, he did actually get a cut in the sixth round. But again, it was it was a really frantic pace. And you mentioned about the, the black bottle, the controversy of the black bottle, which we'll come on to in a bit more detail shortly. That obviously makes you think to yourself, was there something in it? Hmm, I wonder. <laughs> well, we'll go into, into that in a few moments. In between rounds, obviously, smelling salts were allowed back then. In the 80s, they were allowed to use the smelling salts, that given that sort of... <laughs> it was like, basically, when you go through a field, a farmer's field, and you drive past it with your windows down, and you smell horse shit, and it basically <laughs> says... Your dad would say to you, oh, God, that'll put airs on your chest. Breathe that one in. That'll clear your lungs. That was what smelling salts were, basically, for anybody that doesn't know what they were. That was what it was like. So it'd give you that sort of extra air and oxygen into your lungs to give you a little bit more capacity in them. So that would essentially look like it made you come out feeling a bit more and looking a bit more refreshed. So you go into the second half of the fight then, and, and Aguayo's starting to starting to pick him off a little bit now. So he's starting to land them counterpunches. He's sticking to his, he's sticking to his game plan. And he's starting to land them counter punches, and it makes it it makes it more interesting. It makes it more in an interesting fight because then you start to see Aaron Pryor. He does start to slow a little bit in that second half of the fight. Between rounds nine and eleven, you start to see Alexis Aguayo come into the fight more. And this is where you think to yourself, watching it, this is where Aguayo now can take over the fight. This is what becomes significant for Aguayo, and in, in, in his in his history tells us that. So. Second half of the fight then, Johnston. This is where we move into a big part of the episode and obviously the controversial part of this particular legendary night. Yeah, and, and as you say, I mean, prior, he came out from the off, burst off straight on Aguero's chest. And I think for me, what Aguero did do really, really masterfully, if you like, and very clever in terms of, he, he fought at distance. And because he had the perfect range, Aguero was just a bit bewildered with it. And for the first time in his career, he actually sort of, See Aguero sort of struggling to respond, and, and his movement and combinations, especially like you mentioned the sit-down, it's, it's a fantastic combination that Pryor does. He throws a sort of a, a right and then ducks under the shot and twists and moves Aguero around. It, it's just class, and it is, it is just a beautiful combination. And then obviously moving in, as you say, into the second half of the fight where Aguero is starting to find his shots, he's starting to find his rhythm now, he's starting to close the gap. And and he's in the eighth round where he throws a three punch combination that you know, it's a beautiful combo and, and, and some big right hands are now landing. And as you say, Fry seems like he's starting to tire. Uh, and the ninth round is is an amazing round where Aguero 
lands a great left upper, uppercut and then a right cross and then ends it with a left uppercut to the body and then follows it with a right cross. It's like a four-punch four combo. That's just beautiful. And, and Pryor would sort of come back in the last 30 seconds or so, landing successfully with left and rights. But, I mean, that ninth round was a brilliant round and then another round is obviously the 11th round. Aguero, has a, he sort of takes the centre, he does take the centre ring in, in the 11th round. Pryor can't really stop him from marching forward, whereas before he was able to, he was able to land some of the big shots and, and Aguero would back off slightly, where he just, he couldn't, he couldn't sort of withstand the amount of shots. I wouldn't necessarily say the power, although they did obviously hurt him, but Aguero is now, he was landing these spiteful, spiteful shots with his right hand, and in particular, it was a, a thunderous shot and is, is a, a devastating shot that I, I still don't know how prior doesn't go down from it. And there's another one later on in the round, but this in the 11th is a big shot and, and it actually makes his head bobble about a bit. Prior showing that he's also got a fantastic granite chin as well up until sort of in that 11th round and then as we go into the later stages of the fight. There's a hard right hand by Arguello, but Pryor did not take one step back. So then, let's go to it. Let's go to the bit that people are probably thinking, what are their thoughts on this? What are they <laughs> going to talk about with this? The Black Bottle, the infamous Black Bottle, Panama Lewis, as we know him now, eh, he was a bit of an arsehole really, weren't he? I mean, you, you, you watch that documentary about Lewis Resto and Billy Collins and it's called Assault in the Ring documentary. It's really, really sad watch, to be honest with you. Panama Lewis is the focal point of that. But this was another instance here where he's got this black bottle, as you said earlier on in the fight, second round, and he's saying, no, 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 give me that bottle, the black bottle, the one I mixed. So between rounds 13 and 14, it happens again. This is more prominent now. It's picked up more so on the audio than ever. It's quite loud, actually, at this, but you can literally hear the guy say, no, no, the one I mixed, that black bottle, the one I... And you're thinking to yourself, what, what's in that bottle? What is in that bottle? What is he giving him in that bottle? Why does he want that bottle? Punch back! Win these two last rounds! Six minutes! You can fight for six minutes! Give me that bottle! The one I mix! And it becomes more evident as you go into the 14th round because, as you were just rightly pointing out, Pryor's starting to get a little bit spent now. He's taking more hard shots. Aguayo's starting to hurt him more. Yes, he's still in the fight. Yes, he's still dangerous himself. But... You're thinking this is Aguayo's territory. Aguayo, the amount yeah. of times he'd stopped fighters in the 13th round going into the 14th round, he'd stopped Mancini in the 14th round. So, was this going to be the round? Well, no, it wasn't because history tells us now that Aaron Pryor, for events unknown, somehow manages to come back in this round. And whether it is something to do that with that black bottle, we'll talk about that in a few moments. But the fight ended when he came out with an absolute burst. So he batted him from pillar to post in the first minute of that round. He just knocked him around the ring like it was glorified sparring. It was it was a bit crazy to watch because you've watched this whole fight and you're thinking, if you'd not seen it before, you're looking at it thinking, Aguayo, surely now this is it. This is going to be the round prior spent. He's done. He's blown out of his ass. Surely this is going to be it now. But then he comes out and he basically bats him around the ring and ends up landing uh, a combination and then getting him onto the ropes where he's seemingly hurt and then he ends up landing I think it's around 15 to 20 unanswered shots from prior onto Arguello which prompts the referee the legendary Stanley Christodoulou to step in 
and Cole Holt to the fight with Aaron Pryor seemingly on the verge of what could have been a defeat and turns it round into a victory. And then you've got a sad image of Aguayo sort of slumped over the ropes and Pryor's wins and he defends the title. Pryor on that jab and a combination again. And Aguayo's in trouble. Aguayo in big trouble against the ropes. Pryor going for the kill, trying to put him away. Aguayo trying to cover up. A smashing right hand. Aguayo's helpless against the ropes. Aguayo's hands in his side. It's over. Aaron Pryor has retained his junior waterway championship. Aguayo slumps to the canvas. Yeah, and, and, and you know... Uh, that, that, I mean, I, I mentioned the shot with that 11th round. In the 13th round, just before he goes back to the corner to Panama Lewis, where he gives him this mysterious mixed bottle, is he gets caught with one almighty right hand from Alexis Aguero. I mean, even Pryor says, when he hit me, he said, my head flew right back, and he just looked, all he could see was the lights on top of the ring, literally, and he just shot his head back down, and he just carried on fighting. How on earth he managed to stand on his feet Aaron Pryor, after taking that right hand, and as I said, how devastating that right hand was in terms of what he did with Southpaws. I mean, I know Pryor was an orthodox fighter, although he did, he could switch up a little bit, but wow, unbelievable. And, and that shot was, was so ferocious and solid. And as you say, the 13th round, it was like a calling for Aguero. That 13th round was like his round. It was like the Aguero round, if you like. And 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 Pryor looked like a beaten man. He really did, and it was like a matter of time. And obviously, this bottle, this mysterious bottle, and you know whatever was in it, we'll never know. But he did come out like it was just. It was clear as something was given to him because he come out like as fresh as a daisy, like the first round. And but one thing I will say is the finish is unbelievable. And I love to throw that word in, but it's one of the best finishes I've ever seen in a boxing ring. The combination of shots is just. It's ridiculous. Uh, it's left and right to the head, to the body. He will go to the body, he will go back to the head. And Aguero's just, he can't stop him. It's a barrage of shots. And his hands, in the end, his, his hands are gone. He's taking, he takes, I think, the last three or four to the chin. How on earth Alexis Aguero is still on his feet when the referee jumps in? I will never know. But obviously, the referee waves it off. And as he does, as you say, he's taken, he realises that and he just slumps onto the ropes. But yeah, it, it it was a great fight, but the one thing that marred the fight is the controversial mixed bottle. And I mean, what was in it? Uh, this, 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 is the, this is the biggest question, and this is why this has become a legendary night of two towers, because we do move on to the second. But the aftermath of this fight was interesting, because after that fight, Aaron Pryor was supposed to have a drug test. Um, and it was to do with the fact that Bob Aram said that he came into the ring when Aguero was on the deck. He was sort of slumped on the ropes, and he's come in, and, and the, I, I can't remember if it, was a, if it was CBS, I can't remember the other one, one of the other TV networks, with the guy that came in to do the interviews, he was trying to get an interview with Alexis Aguero, and, and basically Bob Aram says, look, look at Alexis, he's on the floor, and he sort of just puts him right a bit, has a little word in his ear, and apparently this reporter, I don't know who he is, what his name is, but apparently he chased Bob Aaron around the ring. Bob Aaron's running away from this geezer because he's got the right up because he can't get a flavoured interview. But anyway, Aaron Pryor says, apparently this is Bob Aaron's story, so Aaron Pryor is sort of in the ring and he goes, oh, I'm getting out of here because they've got a nutcase in the ring. And he runs off to the change room, gets himself chained, and he leaves. But he was supposed to have a drugs test and he didn't have the drugs test. So that is another problem. So... Not only do we know what was in, in in the mixed bowl, I mean, I'm sure I've got a few things down. I'll, I'll let you say what, what, what you what you discovered, Sean. And 
and, and he didn't have the drug test that he was supposed to have. Regarding the black bottle then, I think if you look at the Louis Resto case with Billy Collins and the documentary Assault in the Ring, you look at what Louis Resto talks about in this one. So that doc, that documentary is about padding being ripped out of the gloves. This instance is about the black bottle. He was saying that basically there was two different mixtures that used to go in the bottles that Panama Lewis used to make. One of them was basically crushed up antihistamines. So them antihistamines are used to basically and get your lung capacity up, get your oxygen levels up, so you are breathing in more oxygen, which then essentially pumps the blood around your body more, which gives you that little bit more energy, basically, because your body's working ten times harder than what it needs to be. You get that extra oxygen, makes your heart pump faster and what it, as quick as it needs to to get the blood around your body. So that's the one thing. The second one was peach snaps. Apparently, you used to put peach snaps into the um, <laughs> into the black bottles as well. That is according to Louis <laughs> Resto, by the way. This is Louis Resto's words. So whether that's true, the antihistamine one, I can definitely believe that. I definitely, definitely believe that that was the case. Basically, given given the sort of the, the way it works and the way it helps the body work, yeah, definitely, definitely agree. I, th- I think that was it. So the aftermath of it then, what happens then? Obviously, there's the black bottle incident. There's the fact that there's no drugs test taken, so logically they're going to want a rematch, right? Of course they are, but it doesn't happen straight away. What I found strange about it is why it wasn't immediate, because Aguayo would actually end up having two fights before the rematch would actually take place, which uh, I found quite strange, to be honest with you, why it never became an immediate one. But the aftermath of it, I can't stress enough how much of a black mark, no pun intended, about the black ball... <laughs> This has left on Pryor's career because this is his legendary night. This is his defining night, but it is always, always marred with the controversy over the black ball. He came up and asked me, did I have anything in the black bottle? This is why I took the second fight with him and um, why I told him apart. In the most anticipated rematch since the thriller in Manila between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, Alexis Arguello and Aaron Pryor will again go to war. And it really is. And obviously, Panama Lewis, he was banned for the second fight because of was it the rest of, did rest of happen just after? I think it happened just after before it was it in between the fights? Or it was or I don't know if it was that or if he was banned for something else, but Panama Lewis ended up getting banned for the second fight and uh he, Aaron Prime actually brought in um I believe it was Emmanuel Stewart. Yeah, so either way, yeah, as you say, I mean how how on earth they didn't have the immediate aftermath straight away onto the fight, I don't know. Everybody's saying it was clearly something wrong with a bottle. For one, it's, it's a black bottle. You can't see, you know, why would you have it as, as a black bottle? Because obviously, clearly, it's going to be like a, a cloudy colour, isn't it? And you can clearly see there's something in it. Either way, you know, Panama Lewis is, is just an absolute robber. Let's get it right. And he was sentenced to prison for, for, for the Resto situation. I think him and Resto both went down as well, didn't they, for, for what happened after. But either way... Um, He's just an, an awful person, really. He just wanted to get an advantage, and, and it worked for him. Saying that, they finally did get, get the aftermath. And Alexis Grow, as we've already said, being the gentleman he was, he actually went and spoke to Aaron Pryor himself and said to him, you know, did you have anything in the bottle? And Pryor said, no, I, there was nothing in the bottle. It was just water. Uh, and that was it. Aguero took his word for it, and he accepted it, and he said, fine, you beat me. You was the better man. Let's do it again. 
So that's what was going to happen next, of course. Uh, for Aaron Pryor, he would defend his title one more time before the rematch against Sang Kyung Kim. So he would defend that title in April of 1983, and it was September of 1983, the 9th of September 1983, the rematch was set. But sometimes rematches don't always go the way the first fights went. I think I'd love to see statistics about fights and the rematches of fights is about how statistically better they were because this one wasn't nowhere near as good as the tale of Pryor versus Aguayo number one because Aguayo looked like he didn't have it in him anymore he didn't look like he had the heart to be in the ring anymore and that was the the, the sad part about watching the second fight is that when you watch the the aftermath of, of what this first fight led it was a bit of a downward spiral for both of them to be honest with you I mean in the ring they had the successes of course and you know we can touch on that briefly but outside the ring it wasn't always as successful and it wasn't always as good as what it should have been Aaron Pryor wouldn't go down the route he wanted to go down. Alexis Aguayo wouldn't go down the route he wanted to go down. And you you heard the intro at the beginning of the episode. You heard a, a particular song being played from the 1980s period called White Lines. Well, let's have no guesses as to what that actually refers to in that song. It's a famous song. I think we all know what it's all about. And we also know what their careers aftermath also <laughs> went down as well let's just talk a little bit about the aftermath then obviously the fight the second fight i'm not sort of going to touch too much into it i think it wasn't as good as the first aaron Pryor, same old aaron Pryor, came out and destroyed alexis aguayo in 10 rounds wasn't as good alexis aguayo's heart wasn't there and this left this tarnished legacy of, of, of aaron Pryor, who would obviously then go on to have further fights and actually pick up a loss in his career later on down the line. But subsequently, that was because he was in and out of the ring. He was having issues with with drugs problems, with cocaine, and he was having issues getting himself motivated for fights. So after the Aguayo fight, he would then go on to win the IBF super lightweight title and then defend it before then getting his only loss on his record to Bobby Joe Young. He would eventually go on to fight three more times, ending his career in 1990 after he had an issue with the vision and was denied a boxing license. And that was the end of Aaron Pryor's career. Alexis Arguello's career, slightly different. Obviously, he would go on to, to have fights as well after the math and he would actually go on to, to have one more big win in his career against Billy Costello in 1986 before having a hiatus from the ring for eight years, coming back in 94, getting a majority victory over Jorge Palmares and then losing in his final fight to Scott Walker in 1995. So that was that was the fighting careers inside the ring. That was what they did after this major fight, the legendary night that we've covered. But I think outside the ring is where I want to touch on mostly because I've I've alluded to the fact that there was issues with cocaine going on. And it did happen for both of them. Both of them ended up becoming addicted to cocaine at some point throughout their lives, which were, was a big part in, in their lives and a bit of a downfall at times for them. Yeah, it was. An, and it was a good fight. It was a good fight. It, it wasn't nowhere near legendary, but it was a good night. Action, good night's worth of action and Aguero went down a few times but yeah as you say after the fight both of them had their problems Alexis Aguero briefly had a problem with with, with his with cocaine it wasn't as bad as Aaron Pryor he had these moments where uh, he I think a lot of the time with these with these great legends and even just fighters in general they end up sort of going off on a, a bit of a tandem I suppose after their careers and, and they they dabble in certain things, maybe down to the fact that 
once these guys have finished their careers, they've taken a lot of beating, whether it be in sparring and in the ring. I'm guessing it's a mental problem rather than anything else and who they surround themselves with. They got a big purse as well for the second fight. Pryor got 2.5 million and Aguero got 1.75 million. So it was two of the biggest purses. I think it was definitely Aaron Pryor's biggest purse at the end of his career. And, and Pryor, though, he was hooked on cocaine. Uh, he was massively hooked on it, cocaine and crack. He actually blamed... He, he spent a lot of his time blaming a lot of the people and he blamed his girlfriend. He said he, he said his wife that got him hooked on drugs. And I believe it was the same wife that shot him back in 1980-something. She shot him in the arm when they were... When he, so when uh, she was his fiancée, she shot him in the arm. Police came to, to Pryor's residence and they sent her away and she's sort of saying, I'm married to him and we're going to adopt a kid. Or I'm going to have a kid, and Pryor's like, no, we're not, we're not married, we're, <laughs> we're not adopting no kids. And in the end, he ends up marrying her. So there's a lot about Aaron Pryor, but it, it, he sort of ended up on the streets in the nineties. It, it, it was just, it just took over. It, it literally took over for him to the point where he was just, he, he was on the street. There was even a point where I read and heard that he was actually taking like ten dollars from guys because he was so, so sort of smashed out of his face. He sort of hollering and shouting in the streets about, oh, I'm the world champion. You know, you can imagine. He went down to, his weight was down to nothing. He was as skinny as anything, wasn't eating. And, and guys were actually paying, giving him $10 to have a fight so they could beat him up. And he would take the $10 just so and get, get, go and get himself some more crack cocaine. And uh, it was just a mess. And it was actually Tim Weatherspoon, um, who was a massive fan of Aaron Pryor. Tim Weatherspoon was every weight that was, uh, he adored Pryor. I believe, I think Tim Weatherspoon may have been, been from Cincinnati himself. And, he actually pulled Pryor in and he said, come on, I'm, I'm your biggest fan. Come and just be a part of my entourage. And he just, he liked his, he was charismatic. He had high energy and he wanted, and he wanted him to be around him. So that was what, what turned Pryor around and he managed to, to get, sort, of sort himself out and get off the drugs. But there's a great quote from uh, Aaron Pryor. There was, there's so many as well. You could, there are, I don't think there's many videos, but there's a lot of stuff out there on the web where you could read about some of his quotes, but there's one quote which I, I, it's terrible, but it did make me chuckle. And he says, he actually said when he was so high that he, he was he was getting nicked all the time, and and he said, please God, take this taste away, but it never went away, never, 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 never. You <laughs> <I just laughs> can't feel sorry for the poor fella. And I credit that quote to, to uh, Crime and Sport, who's another podcast that I do listen to, and I want I, I want to put a shout out to them. They actually do a great backdrop of whole of Aaron, Aaron Pryor's career. Obviously, more to do with his crime than his sport, but they're the ones that I found this quote from. And do check it out. If you're an Aaron Pryor fan, have a listen. It's a great listen. And, and obviously, listen to this and watch the fight. Give us our feedback. But yeah, Aaron Pryor cleaned himself up and he actually did end up getting inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1996. And also, Agreo got inducted. He was actually called one of the greatest light, junior lightweights ever by a Houston Boxing Hall of Fame in 2014. But he was inducted in the Hall of Fame. I, can't, I haven't got a date here, but I'm sure he was at some point as well. So, in terms of Aguayo's aftermath, obviously we touched on a little bit of his, his issues with cocaine. He did actually enter politics in Nicaragua. He ended up going back and being the face of the party that ended up getting him exiled 
<laughs> in the late 1970s, which is strange. When I read up on his career and I looked at the Sardinista National Liberal Front, they was actually the party he ended up representing when he went back all the years later. He ended up in politics. He was obviously a hero. The way Giranis in Panama, he was like the same sort of level of, of, of love for him. But things would obviously take a dark turn for Alexis Arguello because at the age of 57, he decided to take his own life by shooting and killing himself. So... That was a, a sad end to, to the tale, really, of, of Alexis Arguello's life. This was a guy that was well-loved by everybody, and it got that dark for him and deep for him that he unfortunately decided to take his own life and died at the age of 57 in 2009. Just just to bite in, I do have to say, when I, when I did read that, and I thought he's in politics, and all of a sudden he's a part of that party, and then he shoots himself in the heart, I don't know, I think that's a little bit sus for me. <laughs> I just thought I'd just throw that in there, because I don't know, I'm not too sure about that. I think... There might be a little bit more to that than uh, than the meets the eye. Consp- conspiracies in boxing. That's certainly <laughs> something that could be certainly discussed down the line. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. As I was going into Aaron Pryor, obviously we talked about Aaron Pryor's career. We did sort his life out. Ended up becoming a Christian minister. Uh, ended up getting in, inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame, as you rightly pointed out there. And unfortunately, he also passed away at the age of 60 years old in 2016. And that was due to heart disease. This particular fight then, ending it on a positive note, of course, and not not a sour note of them passing away. Ending this on a positive note, this fight was so significant to boxing. It really was so significant to boxing. This fight goes up against any of them big fights that we've spoke about earlier and that we've done Legendary Nights on. It is up there as one of them. So much so that it was named the fight of the decade by the Ring Magazine of the 1980s. And you're talking about Hagler Hearns. Hagler Hearns was in that decade as well. And this was named the fight of the decade in the 1980s. So that just goes to show how much it was well thought of above some of them amazing fights that happened throughout the 1980s as well. In 1996, it was also named the eighth greatest fight of all time throughout all weight categories. And this was obviously a long time ago now. So we're now in 2020, but... In 1996, it was voted the eighth greatest fight of all time. There's not been too many more fights that have that have happened since that would kind of push it too far out of say the top 20. It was an amazing fight, an amazing night, and so significant to boxing, but also marred with so much controversy that it leaves a lasting legacy that isn't always the lasting legacy it should have done in terms of its pure will, skill, heart, and determination from both men and both men's careers, it certainly give us one of the great legendary nights that we've really enjoyed covering. Amazing pick by yourself, Johnston, and it's been a, an absolute pleasure to cover this one. Oh, it was, it's just a absolutely stunning fight, and, and one that, uh, as I say, I always went back to, and what an amazing, I mean, we were doing the tower, as I say, the second wasn't as good, the first, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised he got fired, actually I am, I, I assumed it was going to be Hagler Hearns for the fight of the decade, I suppose there's only three rounds. This is, you know, what, 14 rounds, a stunning 14 rounder. And uh, what can you say? It was just a, a classic and, and, and one that is always, I've always enjoyed and always loved to watch. And, and just with the incident as well, it just adds to it, doesn't it? But two legends of the sport. I mean, I'm a massive Alexis Aguero fan. I haven't hidden the fact that I am. And, and he is a, a great fighter of mine. And, and I hope one day we'll get a career profile on him. And Aaron Pryor, I mean... 
the guy was, you know, he was just a great character, wasn't he? And, uh, you know, what time is it? Hawk time. And you see all the videos. I have no idea what the, hell, what the hell I'm saying there. It was just a slogan he always used to say. And it was that his entourage following him. And, uh, yeah, two excellent fighters. World-class fighters. Legendary fighters. Created a legendary night. It certainly did. So if you've enjoyed this legendary night, of course... You can now follow us on our own Legendary Nights podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker. Anywhere you want to find us, we are there. Legendary Nights, give it a search. It now has its own independent podcast feed as part of BTR Boxing Podcast. Please get on there, subscribe, and please rate and review it because this will truly help get the Legendary Nights series well and truly off the ground. So if you've also enjoyed listening to our thoughts and our take on this legendary night, you can go and find us on social media at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook as well. Please go and check out some of our other series. We've got career profiles, we've got ones to watch, and we've got the main BTR Boxing Podcast feed with all the great big fight previews and reaction shows as well as our one-off specials. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you've really enjoyed the tale of Aaron Pryor versus Alexis Arguello. And right now, Thomas Hearns is an open book for Ray Leonard. Backs up against the ropes. This is one of the most unusual calls by a referee in the history of the sport. The first loss, a tremendous victory. Leonard fighting off the ropes. It happened. It happened. Number cut by Douglas. Down goes Tyson. Hudson, right hand shot. Excellent. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.